Welcome to the weekly retail politics podcast where we bring you one download at a time, the best information about your government. I'm your host, Jerry Shields, and today we will discuss the politics of policing in America with our guest, Gary McElhenney, former president of the Baltimore Fraternal Order of Police, uh, former Maryland police chief, and currently handling the corruption and special operations duty for the Maryland Department of Public and Safety and Correction services. Welcome, Gary. Hey, Jared. Good afternoon. Uh, great to be here, man. Great to talk to you. I appreciate it. Let's get to it. As you are most aware, American policing has come under heavy scrutiny over the past few years after uh, several deaths of unarmed African-American men, resulting in calls for massive changes in society. We'll get into some of the fallout from those deaths, including calls to defund police departments. But give me your thoughts on the current climate of American policing from the perspective of the police officers? What are the officers feeling out there? You know, I think it's probably the most challenging time I've seen in my, oh, going on 40 years of law enforcement now, Chair. You know, it's difficult. Uh, um, they're frustrated. Uh, they feel abandoned by uh, those who were in police leadership. They feel abandoned by elected officials. Um, and in some cases, they feel abandoned by the community who um, they're simply there to try to protect and serve as best they possibly can. Much of the political turmoil happening raises the question of racial sensitivity training of police officers. And most of these deaths of unarmed African-Americans were at the hands of white officers. What is the process of racial sensitivity training when officers are hired to join a force? Typically, there is you know anywhere from probably a two to eight hour block of training during uh, training that can last um, up to four months initial entry-level training for police officers. Um, the, the important thing to remember is usually this training is not continued throughout someone's career. So like a lot of training in law enforcement, they, they give it to you once and expect it to stick with you for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years of a career. Um, and when, when, we, when we start talking about defunding police and cutting budgets, uh, training is the first thing to go. So, you know, any training needs to be reinforced and it needs to be continual. Um, we do that training with, with firearms, um, you know, intense introductory firearms training is always part of a police academy, um, but then it's followed up with sometimes every six months, sometimes every year. Um, but that's how you become proficient in something. You, you don't just get to do it or see it or hear it once and then expect it to stick with you. Um, and a lot of the racial, quote unquote, sensitivity training I see um, is really kind of off the shelf stuff. It, it, it's not meaningful. Um, I remember in, in Maryland, we did something uh, many years ago called the, the police corps. And, and what that was, was a, a federal program we received funds for that allowed us to um, hire police officers who were um, college graduates, in exchange for them becoming police officers, it was simply similar to the Peace Corps, we would then pay their college tuition back. 
over a period of a year in exchange for that service. But what we got to develop was, because we had the funding, was really good training. And part of the training, we um, we actually went to police officers on the street and said, if you could design training, what kind of training do you need? And the biggest part, the biggest thing we heard was communication skills and how important it was to be able to communicate. I remember um, one, one, one guy who, who was a friend of mine for years, African-American police officer, grew up in public housing, um, raised by a single mom, put himself through the University of Maryland, became a police officer in Baltimore City, you know, a very violent city, and um, said, you know what? No one ever taught us how to talk to people. And that stuck with me. That's very interesting. And you were an officer and represented the officers who worked in Baltimore, which over the last 30 years, as you mentioned, has been one of the most violent in America, most violent cities. There was a finding here in Florida this week about a man who approached police officers with a gun after robbing a general store, and he was shot 42 times. The officer was absolved of any wrongdoing this week with the conclusion that officers can legally use force if they fear for their lives. You patrolled some of the most violent seats in, uh, streets in the nation. Talk to me about the fear a police officer has when they take the streets. I remember um, a Philly officer from my neighbor being shot to death, my neighborhood being shot to death, and thinking that officers leave their, home, leave their homes in the mornings not guaranteed that they will return to see their family again in the evening. Talk to me about the fear a police officer has when they take the streets. Most police officer deaths, I believe, occur surprisingly during traffic stops and answering domestic violence calls. What is it like as a police officer for you to roll up on a traffic stop or a domestic violence incident? incident or shooting or report of a gun, how much does fear play in that dynamic that plays out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, as, as you think about it, it's something you, you don't think about. Um, or else if you because if you're a police officer and you live eight hours a day of your working day or a 12 hour shift and you are constantly in fear, um, you really wouldn't be able to function or do your job. It would be. Um, it would be paralyzing. Um, I think it's something that police officers put in the back of their mind. Um, I, I've been in some very dangerous situations, and it really isn't until it's over that you look back and say, wow, that could have been uh, really bad. So um, I think it's, um, it's something that police officers try to deal with as best they can. But, you know, you mentioned the, the, um, the, the laws surrounding deadly force. And you know, that's a Supreme Court decision because the courts and, and Congress have recognized that each person is different. Um, police officers aren't robots. They don't turn on and turn off and everybody has different levels of fear and what they deem to be a, a, a physical threat to them or somebody else. And if they're the ones with the gun and able to respond, then we have to literally put ourselves in their shoes, in their mind. And um, is that something that a prudent police officer would do? 
So that that's a great segue because many of the officers involved in these deaths have been involved in other incidents in the past. Many times after a fatal police encounter, friends will say of the officer, oh, it was only a matter of time. And you and I talked before about this. And you mentioned that even when you're on the street, there are officers you do not want to show up on the scene that you're handling. Tell me about that. Well, you know, it comes in, in two in two groups as I see it. There, there's there's the people that you're really comfortable with, um, that you work with every day. Um, you know how they react. Is your policing is a team sport? <laughs> we might ride around by ourselves in a car, and, and oftentimes um, you have to deal with things with a single police officer. And you know, as you remember, that's something that's developed over time, right? Used to be you always had a partner. Um, there was always two police officers in a car going back to the Adam 12 days. <laughs> um, but, you know, now because of budgets and, and cost cutting, they put one police officer in a car. So you got to rely on, you know, people you might not actually work with all the time. Um, but, you know, you develop relationships and um, you know who's good at what and you know who's not good at certain things. So, um yeah, I mean, there, there there was police officers that I knew if they showed up on a domestic uh, situation, they would be good. Um, but if that same person showed up when I was dealing with some smart mouth juvenile, might not be the one I wanted to see. <laughs> if everyone knows about these officers, how is it that they remain on the force? Uh, we had an incident in Maryland where an officer who was uh, released from a department in Delaware for kicking an African-American man when he was on the ground. He got hired in Maryland, uh, chased a teen, African-American teen, tased them. The kid had a heart attack and died. How do these guys remain on the force? In that particular situation, I think the facts were that, um, I think it's to be borne out that there was even some falsified paperwork that might have allowed that individual to become a police officer in the state of Maryland. Um, but, you know, the, listen, you, you have to have a valid reason to take someone's job. Everybody's eligible and receives due process before you, you know, take their job. Um, just because someone has a bad attitude or, um, you know, might not handle a particular situation right doesn't mean that they're not good police officers. Doesn't mean they can't be a good detective. Um, everybody's different. Like you know, I keep wanting to go back to the my you know, my comments about a robot. The, the police officers are human beings. They come to jobs with um, the same life experiences that anybody else would bring to a job, and um, you know it need you need to have that constant training, that constant supervision, um, that constant correcting of any you know bad habits or bad behavior. Um, in order to become a successful police officer. I was reading where the average police chief serves two and a half to three years. That's about a long enough for the police commissioner to get policies and strategies in place when they're let go. And police commissioners can have two dozen so-called bosses. They are hired by a town manager or a mayor, but they also, and it was in Baltimore's case when I was there, 18 council members. And I was reading that the chief's regret 
the chief regret of police commissioners is not being able to focus on real police work. How big of a role does politics play in policing and are the decisions of elected officials affecting what is happening on the street? Oh, I, I think the decisions made by elected officials, the interference by elected officials, the um, micromanaging, if you will, by elected officials over certain police chiefs, and we've seen it um, in recent times, has really had a devastating effect on law enforcement. Um, when a city or a community hires a police chief, they, you know, they're real proud to list the qualifications and the experience and the background of the chief. And then the next thing you know, they want to tell them how to do the job, him or her, how to do the job. Um, and, you know, I had an experience. I was, I was chief of police for four years in a, in a large department. Um, I was fortunate. I had bosses um, that let me do my job. I, I think I had one of the best police chief's jobs in the state of Maryland, um, if not the entire East Coast. Um, and was just given the, the, the funding, the budget, the support, um, to run my department. Um, now I'm not naive enough to think that certain things I got to call the boss, right? It's it's the headline test. Is it going to be in the paper tomorrow? Is it going to be in above the fold? And my boss needs to know about it. Um, so yeah, you you have to play that role. But you know, in the hands um, a police chief that has to deal with um, interference from elected officials. Um, it's difficult. It causes problems with promotions. I've had, I've had elected officials come to me and say, I want so-and-so promoted. And if I don't promote them, um, there's going to be consequences to your budget. That's just, that's, it's appalling. And it really hinders um, the, the job that police chiefs need to do, which is concentrate on managing and motivating your people to do a difficult job. How can we improve that? How can we take that polit political pressure off police commissioners? We're not going to change politicians' desire to get reelected <laughs> or, or to move up in office. And, and we all know that um, the minute certain, and I'm not talking in general terms, certain elected officials um, get elected, they're thinking about getting reelected or they're thinking about the next office. Um, so you need a chief that's willing to stand up to them. And, and sometimes chiefs do that and they pay the price with their career. But if an elected official thinks they can run all over you, um, then some of them are going to do it. And uh, you need to have the um, fortitude to say, I'm sworn, I take an oath to do this job and I'm going to do it the best I can. Yeah, we had a famous incident in 2015 in Baltimore with the death of Freddie Gray, who was known to police as a guy who had a long record of uh, you know, more smaller crimes. And he died in the back of a police wagon when he was handcuffed and shackled, yet not secured and broke his neck. And uh, you remember uh, the six officers were charged in that death, which resulted in riots through the city and buildings being burned. And the National Guard called in the officers were exonerated. But as you know, now working um, in the prison system, arrests in Baltimore plummeted after that. And the perception was that officers decided, hey, if we can get charged while on the job, we won't put ourselves in that position. Murders in poor black neighborhoods spiked. And I see this call to defund police departments having that same kind of effect. Would you agree? Oh, I'd absolutely agree. The, the, um, the call to defund the police is, in my mind, the exact opposite of what 
those people who want police reform should be calling for. They, they should be calling for more funding for police. They should be calling for better training, better equipment, increased pay to hire quality police officers. Um, it's the exact opposite, I think, of the message that needs to be sent to law enforcement and the communities, and particularly the, the, the communities that are just riddled with crime, that are so violent um, that people cannot e simply even go out of their houses. I mean, we just had a, a 15-month-old baby shot in southeast Washington, D.C. in the past two days um, in the back of his dad's car, shot multiple times and killed while dad's driving down the street. Um, these are communities that are under siege. And, you know, the message should be, okay, police, we need you to go in there and do your job. And um, we understand it's a difficult job, but we're going to give you the tools to do it. That's what the community wants in my mind. Yeah, and that's interesting because I, I had a conversation. There was a, a, a school, a class that came in from Georgetown into the prison, and there was they paired them up with inmates, and this one young woman was, you know, arguing, you know, hey, when the police roll up and hassle you, and one of the older inmates, I think he was a lifer, said, if the police aren't in that neighborhood, it's chaos. But um, you mentioned communication, and uh, I recently read a book called Verbal Judo by George Thompson, who was a college English literature professor and he decided to become a police officer to test his communication theories in it he states that many of these incidents that result in deaths are due to poor communication on the part of the police he interestingly calls the most lethal weapon in all communications particularly with the police is the cocked tongue. Most people have been pulled over at one time or another and an officer walks up and says, sir or ma'am, can I see your license and registration? Thompson argues that's antagonistic, that the officer increases the tension by such an aggressive approach and should walk and say, hey, uh, good evening. I'm Officer McElhenney. I noticed you were driving over the speed limit back there. Is everything okay? Do you need any help? He argues that many times officers are escalating the incidents through this aggressive demeanor. I saw this in the killing of the driver in the summer over um, in, in Atlanta with the Wendy's drive through He fell asleep in the drive through First officer approached and said, hey, are you okay? Did you have a bad day, my man? He told the man to park in the lot, began talking to him. Second officer arrives, shows up, becomes argumentative with the guy who was drunk, um, but the key was when the officer, without notice, reached for the man's arm to put his hands behind his back to arrest him. The man was on probation, knew he would be going to prison. He wrestled with the officers, tried to grab their taser, ran, and was shot to death. Many of these crimes, um, or, or many of these people who are being killed, are approached for nonviolent crimes. Eric Gardner in New York was choked after, I think he was selling cigarettes. Freddie Gray uh, was apprehended when he just started running from officers. Uh, we had a killing this week in Florida where the kid was wanted for throwing a kid on the ground during a basketball game. He resisted. 
He shot at the police, hit an officer uh, before being shot to death himself. So Thompson argues that officers need to know that all people want to be treated with dignity, be asked rather than told to do something, and given options rather than threats. And he argues that officers should warn everyone what they intend to do before they do it, which didn't happen in the Wendy's case. Do you feel there needs to be better training when it comes to communication and interacting with the public to de-escalate situations when you arrive on the scene? I, I do agree that better communication skills um, is something, and it's something that can be taught. So I think better communication skills for some police officers is really a realistic um, type of training that they can be they can be put through and have at their disposal to understand what makes something, what makes a situation worse and how can you um, keep things um, moving in the right direction. I don't like the word um, de-escalation because to me, um, it takes two to de-escalate a situation. Um, if the person I'm dealing with is not in the mood to be de-escalated, it's not going to happen. Um, I do believe in the ver um, verbal judo concept, and that is words are important. And if you can be taught and learn to use the right words, you can prevent things from getting out of hand. Um, but folks have to recognize not every call, no matter how minor it's dispatched, um, is, is going to end up okay. I mean, the potential for bad things to happen is on the most routine calls. Charleston, West Virginia just lost a police officer um, either early this morning or yesterday um, who was responding to a parking complaint. The most routine of calls, a female officer, she was shot in the head and killed. Um, you know, you, you got to be on your guard all the time. Um, that doesn't mean you have to be arrogant and begin ordering people around um, and begin escalating the situation. Because, um, you know, those of us in law enforcement, and, and we talked about it a little earlier, the guy on the call that comes in and throws a flamethrower in the middle of your domestic, <laughs> just as you kind of got people in separate corners, um, can be just as big a problem as the people you're dealing with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you, have, to, you have to learn, and, and police officers can be taught through better training um, how to communicate better. And it was interesting, this guy Thompson, he becomes a police officer. His first night, you know, three traffic stops, he ended up ripping the drivers out of the seat and throwing them on the ground, locking them up. And he goes to a domestic and these two people are arguing and he's in the middle trying to sit. And his trainer comes in, uh, sits on the couch, opens the paper and starts reading it. And uh, he's looking at the paper and he says, well, you think I should get a Honda or a Toyota? And the whole thing stopped. And they all looked at this guy like and, and but that was trying to what he was trying to say is that um, the general pass away is better. But, I, you know, I don't know if the general pass is it realistic? I mean, how do you reason? The guy who's hopped up on drugs, who really has no reason and ability or is unable or unwilling to follow instructions. Yeah, I mean, you got to recognize, and I think people do recognize, and police officers recognize, not everyone is going to be receptive to you being nice to them. I mean, you know, management has given police officers all the tools. They have body cameras now, right? So everything the officer says is being recorded to be critiqued 
later in, in the coziness of someone's office to be able to say, hey, you should have said this or you should have done that. You know, you mentioned the car stop where you walk up and approach it differently than, you know, what people are used to seeing, which is license and registration. Well, now it's license and registration. Oh, and by the way, you're being recorded. That's being told to them, right? So that puts people on the defensive right away. And that's something that management's given to officers in hopes of helping them. Um, but, you know, if you follow the concept um, that you were talking about, that might be something that raises the stakes a little bit. Um, so, yes. you know, it's, 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 it's a balance. It, it's like everything um, when it comes to policing. There are times um, for, and I used to tell my officers, that there's, there's times I understand where you're going to use words that would embarrass your mother um, if she heard you say them, and that might be called for. And there's going to be times where you should have said, yes, sir, no, ma'am, and moved on. And it's going to be based on your judgment and experience of, of what you think is best. But um, I think you know, it gets back to training and um, the emphasis on giving police officers quality training. And you've talked about this before, too, in terms of the quality of the officer that's being hired. I mean, there's always people who say, hey, you get an 18 year old out of high school, you give him a badge and gun, you throw him on the street. I don't think that's the case in Maryland. Anymore. I think you still have, I mean, Baltimore, you have to be 21. But um, what is that factor? I mean, the factor that you're, you're putting someone out there and you're saying that if they don't have the right training, that's where the explosiveness comes in. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's and it's the quality of the of the people you're hiring. You know, in most major cities, the suburbs tend to make more money. Right. So if I'm if I'm a young person and wants to be a career in law enforcement and, you know, in Maryland, I can I can go to, you know, a surrounding jurisdiction, which is not as violent as Baltimore. And I can get better pay, significantly better pay. I'm talking tens of thousands of dollars better pay, better pension, better benefits. Um, what does Baltimore become? Does it become the employer of last choice for people who want to be police officers, which is a small pool of individuals anyway? Um, you need to treat it with, this, with the priorities that it should have. And, and just like our teachers, um, police officers should be somebody that um, the community wants to hire and wants to hire the best they possibly can. Yeah, we pay in America. We pay a guy twenty-four million to chase a little white ball around the field, and um, teachers and officers are taking extra jobs to uh, to make ends meet. Right. What is the answer to improving this current policing conflict in America? You know, I think it's meaningful dialogue between people who have the best interest of the communities at heart. We've we've had, we've seen so many what I call noisemakers step into this conversation and, um, you know, kind of take away from the meaningful conversations that need to take place. Um, you know, this isn't about defunding police. This isn't about putting police officers in jail. Um, this isn't about decriminalizing marijuana or the failures of our education system. Um, if we're going to talk about police, we're going to talk about letting the police be the police. And how can we best do that and get rid of all the noise that's out there and, you know, really focus on quality policing that the communities want. And I'm sorry, but I don't think there's, and Jerry, you know this, I, I don't think there's anybody in West Baltimore 
living in West Baltimore, trying to raise a family that wants less police or less resources in their community. Okay, you're hired. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on and um, being so frank with us about uh, what it's like to be out there and um, taking your time to do that. I know you've been around a long time, seen a lot of things, so we uh, we appreciate you taking the time to share that with us. I will, really appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks, guy. All right, we will be back next week with another edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. I wanted to take the time to thank our executive producer, Mike Gugat, our technical producer, Brad, maybe the Wizard of Pods. And if you get a chance, check out my book, um, The Front Row, uh, Recording American History uh, from Reagan to Trump, which is available on Amazon. And we will be back next week. And until that time, always remember, read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.